serious thing around here if you're new to our church. Uh, this afternoon you're going to go home and watch football or do whatever you do and you're going to cheer and clap for things all week long that you're going to celebrate. And yet a lot of times we come to church and we don't celebrate a whole lot. And so we've decided as a church that it would be cool to celebrate God's Word and the power that it has in our lives. And so one of the things we do is when we ask people to open their Bibles, if you want to, you can just scream and cheer and clap and have all kinds of fun with it. So we're glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 14 and we're going to have some fun today. Uh, Exodus chapter 14, we're going to look at two verses of Scripture together this morning as we start this new teaching series called the Red Sea Rules. And so, if you will, in Genesis and then Exodus, the first two books of the Bible, it's the second book there, Exodus chapter 14, and I'm just going to read these first two verses to you, and then we're going to pray together. And here's what Moses recorded in Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we love you and we trust you. You are our God. You are our King and there's no one like you. And we're excited today that we get to come and celebrate who you are. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to just take a moment and let our words, just like we sang, that our words will be few. So many times we fill life with words and we talk so much and we don't just stop and recognize your power and your goodness and your glory. And so today, Father, we just want to stop, recognize how powerful you are. And we know and believe, God, that you have something to teach us today. And so I pray that every, uh, every heart here would have something to learn today, that every person would engage with you in a way that brings honor and glory to the name of Christ, and that you would show us uh, what it looks like to be followers of Jesus uh, or to be on a journey toward knowing you as God and Savior. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the old saying goes that uh, storms are part of life, right? And so you are either uh, in the middle of a storm now, or you've just come through a storm, or a storm is on the horizon for you, right? Anybody ever kind of felt that and know that? Uh, anybody here that would say, man, I kind of feel like I may be one of those people in the middle of a storm right now. There is something going on in my life right now, and it's just kind of crazy. It's hard to deal with. I've got some pressure situation that I'm facing. Uh, maybe that's not you. Maybe you would say, you know what? I think I just came through a season of a really difficult storm. Uh, a really trial kind of time in my life, and I think the sun is finally shining again in my life. Like I can see hope. There is there is something happening on the horizon that I feel confident in again. Um, if that those two things don't fit you, then the next thing probably gets your attention a little bit. That means there may be a storm coming for you next, right? And so you're either in one of those three places. There's either a storm you've just walked through and you're kind of coming out of. You're in the middle of a storm now, or a storm is on the way. And so when we think about storms or trials or difficulties, there's always going to be those things in our life. This is applicable to every person in the universe. Difficulties are part of life. Trials are part of life. Storms are part of life. The question is, how do we deal with those things? When difficult circumstances happen, when bad things come into life, when there's trials in life, when there's storms to deal with, how do you manage those things? And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this this series called the Red Sea Rules, we're going to look at some biblical principles, God-given principles for dealing with troubles, for dealing with difficulties, for dealing with trials and storms. And so we want to just walk through for 10 weeks, what does God say that we should be able to deal with difficulties when they come into our lives? So that's the way we're going to be going. I mentioned during the announcement time, we're starting this book series or the teaching series based on a book by Robert Morgan called the Red Sea Rules. Um, what we're going to do with that, I'm not going to straight teach what he said. I'm not going to stand up here and read Robert Morgan's book to you and say this is the Word of God to you. Um, we're not going to do that, but there are going to be some principles that we're going to pull from that book and use to help guide us during these 10 weeks. And so 
as we go through these things, we're going to watch the nation of Israel go through one of the worst trials that they'll face in their time as a, as a nation. And it's going to be interesting because it follows up on one of the most joyous occasions that they'll face in their history. We're going to watch the children of Israel for the next 10 weeks leave Egypt where they've been slaves for 430 years and go out into a desert to a little peninsula where they're going to be encamped between mountains and an ocean. And we're going to have to learn what they deal with as they go through a trial and as they go through a storm. And so that's kind of the direction that we're going to be going for the next several weeks. Now, uh, whether you grew up in church or not, you probably know the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments and the Exodus. Uh, and so that may be a familiar kind of thing to you. Uh, I want to show you a couple of pictures just to help get your mind wrapped around. Do we have slides? All right, so fantastic. Um, anybody remember the Ten Commandments movie with uh, Charlton Heston? All right, some smiles on your faces. Uh, remember when this one would come on every year around Easter? And it would always be like a, a two or three night miniseries because it was forever stinking long. Like it had to take a whole week to watch the movie. <laughs> You'd be like, follow us next week when we come back for the conclusion of the Ten Commandments. And you're like, we know how it's going to end. They're going to walk through the ocean, right? And so, uh, but it was like this big deal to watch the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. Uh, so Hollywood tells this story occasionally. Then more recently, DreamWorks Animation. Any, any cartoon fans in the house? DreamWorks Animation did The Prince of Egypt. I uh, love this one. This is one of my all-time favorites. We can, you can show this one to your kids. This is fantastic. Uh, but the, the, uh, the Prince of Egypt, where Moses comes in uh, and, and leads the people of Israel out uh, into the desert, into their freedom. And so then the most recent telling of the story came with a movie called Exodus, Gods and Kings. Anybody see this one? This one starred Christian Bale, which I think is fantastic. Batman playing Moses. I love that, right? <laughs> Anytime you can get a reference back to Batman, it is fantastic. What you may not know, this is how geeky I am, uh, in the, the, uh, the earlier movie, the, the Prince of Egypt, um, the person that voiced Batman was also, or that voiced Moses also played Batman. Val Kilmer played Batman uh, at another time. So um, I think if Charlton Heston had been alive in this century, he would have probably been Batman too. They would have found a way to make Charlton Heston into Batman. But um, that's neither here. Is he still alive? Did I just kill Charlton Heston and he's still with us? No, he's dead? Okay, fantastic. Um, <clears throat> Sorry. Well, regardless of the way that you think about this movie and the story being told, it always ends the same way, right? They, they tell it in a lot of different ways. The Exodus, Gods, and Kings was a crazy telling of the story. I'm not by any means saying, hey, that's a biblical foretelling of the story, but uh, interesting nonetheless. But regardless of how they tell the story, the outcome's the same. Following 430 years of slavery in Egypt, the Hebrews are liberated God liberates his people by unleashing a torrent of plagues on the nation of Egypt. And then Pharaoh finally relents from his stubbornness, his hardness of heart, and he tells Moses, you can take your people and get them out. God is removing them from the land. He's taking them to the land that he's promised them hundreds and hundreds of years before to their forefather Abraham. And so when we see this today, we're going to pick up on the story. We're not going to go through all of the stuff that happens in Egypt. Most of us are familiar with the plagues and the events and all those kinds of things. What we're going to do is pick up with the people who have already now been freed. And yet they're going to find themselves in the middle of a difficult situation. Because in their freedom, they're still going to discover that trials are part of life. And so we're going to pick up in that place today. And again, if you would read with me in Exodus chapter 13 this time, pick up in verse 17. And let's read through 14.3. Exodus thirteen seventeen, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them out on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. 
For God said, if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear on oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry up my bones from this place. And after leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them and on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hiharoth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite of Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. Let's stop there. When you see something, there's a curious phrase in verse 18 in that passage, in, in chapter 13, verse 18, it actually says the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Uh, that's a doubtful translation of the phrase because they've been slaves for 430 years. I'm not thinking that Pharaoh has allowed them to form an army and a military and train and do all those kinds of things. Although in Exodus, gods and kings, that's very much the way it's portrayed, that there are military people ready to get out of Egypt and fighting, fighting their way out of, of Egypt. Uh, and yet when they leave, they don't have this army. They don't have this military personnel. So what does it mean that the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle? Well, the Hebrew word there, uh, which I hope I'm going to say this right, kamushim, is interpreted by us ready for battle. It's better translated in battle formation, which simply would mean that they left in an orderly way, right? They were in battle formation. They were in groups. They were marching out of Egypt. They were in battle formation. Uh, another translation of that word, more appropriate translation of that word, could mean that their loins were girded for travel, right? Loins is just a fun word to talk about in church, isn't it? Uh, and so you talk about it and you go, here's the deal. They, they would take their cloaks, their tunics, and they would wrap it around their waist and tuck it into their belt so that they could walk easily. So it could mean that they had their tunics tucked, they were ready to go and march out of Egypt. The third way that you could translate this, actually the first time this specific Hebrew word is mentioned is on the fifth day in creation. God has already created everything, sky, land, water, and the word is put there in a way to say that everything is prepared to receive what God's going to create next, animals and people. So everything has been prepared and put right for God to be able to do what He wants. It's furnished and it's ready. So when you see this word in the Hebrew, one of the other things that we find in chapter 12 of Exodus is that when, when Pharaoh lets the people go, God says that the Egyptians are so favorable then toward the Hebrew people because of all the plagues that have been unleashed on Egypt. They're so favorable toward the people of Egypt or Israel that as they leave, the people of Egypt give them clothing and silver and gold. Chapter 12 actually says that the, the nation of Egypt was plundered by the Israelites as they left. So one of the things that we could get from this is that they were furnished and they were ready. Regardless of how you interpret that, they're furnished, they're ready, they've got their cloaks tucked in, they're ready to walk, they're in battle formation, they're on their way out. The people of Israel are free. And so you see God making a way for His people to leave. But then the reason that I think that is not appropriately translated that they're in battle formation, that they're ready for battle, is because the very next thing that God says, it says that He leads them up toward the Philistine territory. And while that would have been the easiest trek on the north side of Egypt out into Israel... He says if they go and they find battle, they may turn back and lose heart and go back to Egypt. So God redirects them because he doesn't see them as being ready for a military attack. So we can kind of say that maybe there's a different way for us to look at that. But the road into the land of promise was directly through this Philistine territory, and yet God does something completely 
different with them. So from the very beginning of the journey out of Egypt, Moses tells us an important detail for us to understand. And I want you to see this in chapter 13, verse 21. It says that by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night He was in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Here's what's important for us to understand as we start seeing this. God was guiding the people of Israel. God was with them. God was their guard. He was giving them direction. He was going to lead them on the journey to the promised land. And it's at this point that we see God give His first instructions to the people of Israel as they make their journey. And so look at what His first instructions are to Moses. Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back. Remember, they're heading toward Philistine territory. So He says, You tell them to turn back. Let's do a redirect. Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea. They're to encamp by the sea, directly opposite of Belzephon. So if we can put the, the map up that I've got here on the PowerPoint slides, you can kind of see a rough sketch as to where they would have been. The land of Goshen, which is in that green area up there, the Israelites have been given the very best land when they moved to Egypt uh, 430 years earlier. Joseph had given them the land that was near Goshen. It was the most fertile area of land in Egypt. And they had lived there for 430 years as slaves most of that time. When they leave, they cross over into the desert. And you can see where Israel is. The little pin on the top part of the map there is where Israel would be. That would be the most direct route. Just stay north, head into Israel. But to do that, you have to go through Philistine territory. They're not ready for that battle. So God redirects them. He points them down. And so the next picture that you're going to see uh, enlarged a little bit, you can see this little peninsula that's circled here. And so when you kind of take a look at that from Google Earth, from way, way up in space, that doesn't look very cool. But when, let's look at the next image. I want you to see this next one. Here's the actual peninsula as you get closer. And you can even see carved through the mountains the desert road that would have led to that peninsula as the Israelites would have been directed by God to go from the desert through the mountains and onto this peninsula called Pi-Haharoth. And so the first act that God gives to the people of Israel, the first command He gives them is turn back camp near Piharoth between Migdal and the sea. They're to encamp by the sea directly opposite of Belzephon. Now, I don't have enough time today to go into all the stuff that, uh, that I've been looking at this week that gives some historical evidence of why we believe that really is the location where they camped out. But that is a huge area. Uh, and so when we see that, we can understand for a, a moment that there are 600... Uh, earlier in Exodus chapter 12, it tells us that there are 600,000 men who leave by foot, not counting the women and children. So the possibility of up to, to 2 million people being on this journey who walk through this windy road through the mountains and onto this beach, it's a huge area of land. And so they were camped out there. And yet we see them on their first taste of freedom that God leads them straight into a perilous situation. They're literally now between a rock and a hard place. They have a mountain to their backside. They have an ocean in front of them. It's about seven miles across that gulf, the Gulf of Aqaba, which is, flows out from the Red Sea. And so they have an ocean and a mountain that's between them. And God's led them right there. And what's interesting is when you see verse 14, or in chapter 14, uh, that he says that God is going to let the Pharaoh think the Israelites are wandering around in the desert. They're hemmed in by the mountains. They're in trouble. And they would realize that they're in trouble. And so what we start seeing here is that we need to learn something from this situation. The first Red Sea rule that we're going to get to 
as we discover for the next 10 weeks, what are the rules to live by when we start to think about life in trials and life in struggles, life in times of pain? Here's the first rule you live by. Realize that God means for you to be where you are. God had intentionally directed His people to this beach. You realize that God means for you to be where you are. And for a lot of us, that's difficult to hear. But when you're in a difficult spot, like Israel, trapped between mountains and the sea, realize that God either placed you there or He allowed you to be there. He either placed you there or He allowed you to be there. And it's perhaps for reasons known only to Him at the time. That's the difficult thing for us, right? That God may place us somewhere difficult, and yet we always ask, why, God? Why are you allowing me to be here? And God goes, I'm not even going to tell you that. Just that's where I want you to be. I'm placing you here for this moment. Or I've allowed you to be here for this moment. J.I. Packer said this, God knows the way He takes, even if for the moment we do not. God knows. God has a plan. He's sovereign. And even though we may not know, God knows. God knows why He's put you right there. We don't always know what God's up to. He directs our lives. But we, and we don't have the privilege, like God, of knowing the future. So when we look at our circumstances and question things, one of the most comforting things that, comes to, that we can do is trust that God's at work and that He has a plan for our life. And so when we think about this, I don't know today what your hard spot is. I don't know if it's a sickness you're facing. Maybe it's, it's a cancer diagnosis for you or someone that you love. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's some kind of problem. I don't know if you've got a financial crisis that you're in the middle of and you don't know where your next paycheck's going to come from. You don't know how you're going to pay your next bill. You don't know how you're going to get out from underneath the weight of credit card debt and all those kinds of things. I don't know where you are, what your struggle is. Maybe you've had some relational conflict that's reached levels that you never even thought possible, that you've just hit this immensely difficult time in a relationship, and you're just going, God, I don't know why you've put me here. I don't know why this is, is happening. Maybe for some of you it's a theological struggle. You're trying to make sense of God, and you don't fully understand who God is or what He's about, what He's up to. You've made some decisions about God that you are trying to figure out. Well, regardless of where you are, you need to understand that God's either placed you here or God's allowed you to be here. Now, what do I mean when I say that, that God has allowed you to be here? What, what do I mean by that? Here's what I would simply say. Sometimes God doesn't lead us into difficulty. We have a pretty good propensity to get there on our own, right? Because we have sinful hearts, we can walk away from God's plan. And because of our sin, we can put ourselves into difficult situations. And yet, God, in His sovereign knowledge of what He's going to do in our lives, doesn't stop us from going to those difficult places. Sometimes God will allow us to walk in a sinful way for a period of time to get to a place in the journey where He can work on our hearts and where He can change us. Sometimes God illustrates and puts us where He wants us to be. Other times God allows us to go there, knowing that once we're there, He's going to do something to change us. And so when we think about God, we think about His sovereignty. God can even use our sinfulness. He can even use our wanderings, our straying from Him for His greater plan and accomplish things for your life that you couldn't do on your own. And so while it's great, while it's not God's will that you would sin, I would, I would want you to know that specifically. God's never sitting in heaven going, why don't you choose sin so that I can do something amazing in your life? He doesn't want you to sin. He doesn't willfully let you choose sin. But God allows us to sin and choose difficult paths so that He can bring good 
from them. So God alone knows what His purposes and the issues that you're facing, but here's what I would tell you to give you hope. If you're in the middle of one of those hard times right now, here's what I would tell you to give you hope. And it's the next blanks on your outline. The same God who led you in or who allowed you in can lead you out. The same God who led you in will lead you out. And over these ten weeks, we're going to see how God works in the lives of the nation of Israel to lead them out of the situation that they're in. And so we're going to see that that same thing is true for our lives as well. Now, here's the deal. You may not come out unscathed. You may go through a storm. You may go through a trial. You may go through something that's incredibly difficult. And you might come out on the other side of that wounded. And it might be a lingering wound. It might stick with you for the rest of your life. You may never be completely the same. Others of us may go through trials and difficulties, and we might not get through at all. God leading us out may be His gentle mercy of completely removing us from life. Some of us will face trials that will last the rest of our life, and yet God in His powerful purpose will bring you out of that by letting you experience death and walk joyously into eternal life. So we have to have a mindset of God is doing something powerful that we can't always fully grasp and fully comprehend and understand, but He's in charge. Now, some of you may have a theological perspective that's difficult to think about in these circumstances because some of us develop this, this, this theology that, man, when we come into faith in Christ, I thought God was supposed to make my life all better. I didn't think there were supposed to be any more problems. I thought life was supposed to get easier, Right? God was supposed to make everything about rainbows and sunshine and butterflies and unicorns and all those kinds of fun things. There should be dolphins everywhere, right? And so we're just like, why are there difficulties? And when we think about these things, we need to understand that those things may have been told to us, but if they were, they're not biblical. So I want us to quickly walk through a few things in Scripture that help us get a proper theological view on the trials and the difficulties that we face. So listen to just a few passages of Scripture. They're going to appear on the screen. You don't need to turn there with me because I'm going to go through these quickly. John 15:20. this is Jesus speaking. Jesus said, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they'll obey you as well. 1 Peter 4:12. Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange has happened to you. Peter says, We've told you these things are going to be here. Life is going to be hard. Trials are going to come. Don't be surprised by that. Suffering happens, even in the life of a Christian. James chapter 1, verses 2-4, through 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then finally, John 16:33. This is Jesus again. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. Now, next week when we get into the second rule of the Red Sea, we're going to look at the next verses of Exodus that describe more fully what the Israelites were facing on that beach with mountains on one side of them and a sea on the other. And it's going to get even more difficult for them. And so we're going to take a look at that next week. But it's easy for us to say things like, hey, take heart, God's going to overcome the world when things are going smoothly, right? But put yourself in the situation when you're sitting in the doctor's office and he says you have a brain tumor. Take heart, I've overcome the world 
probably isn't the first thing that's going to pop into your mind in that moment. Maybe you would be somewhere where your 401k just completely takes a dive and you just lose all of your savings, all of your retirement. It's gone. I'm assuming that take heart isn't the first thing that pops into your mind in that moment. Some of us are going to find things when our marriages are falling apart. We're going to hit that moment where you just go, how does take heart I've overcome the world help in this moment? And yet we have to realize and understand that that's exactly what Christ directs us to hear from Him. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Now, here's how we deal with these kinds of things. There's two ways we typically respond. Number one is we worry. We worry, right? 401K takes a dive, worry. What am I going to do now? Brain tumor, oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? My marriage is falling apart, oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? We worry. The second thing is fear. We allow fear to take hold of us and cripple us. Typically, those are our responses. When we go through difficult situations, we have worry and we have fear. And I have to tell you, I think that's exactly what the Israelites were facing in these moments. When they're standing on this beach with the mountains behind them and the Red Sea in front of them, I think that they have worry and I think that they have fear. And here's why. Let me just give you some thoughts to to think about as you understand these newly freed people of Israel. Number one is this. They've lived in captivity for 430 years in a polytheistic society. They've lived among a nation of people who have always worshipped multiple gods, hundreds of gods. Egypt had a god for everything. A God of the grass, a God of the sand, a God of the Nile, a God of the sun, a God of the clouds, a God of the fertility, a God of everything. And they're coming out of a, a place where they've just been ingrained to see that there is multiple gods. That's where they're coming out of. Now, he, the Hebrews as a, as a people have stayed pretty consistent in maintaining their, their uh, worship of the one true God. But you have to know that it's been ingrained in them that there are all these other gods. And so we see that that's the first thing. The second thing is this. They only have oral tradition to pass along about God's dealings with mankind. The only thing these people know about God is what's been told to them through their ancestors. Moses will write the first five books of the Bible during these 40 years of wandering in the desert. At this point, standing on this beach, they don't have Scripture to go to and go, well, let's see what God's done in our past. What does He say about this? How should we handle this situation? All they have is an oral history told by their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents. This is what God is like. This is how God behaves. This is what God does. And so it's less than a full picture of the story of who God really is. Here's the next thing. They don't really know this God who just rescued them. God's been reintroducing Himself to the people as the plagues ripped through Egypt. Here's what's beautiful about the, the plagues. And you kind of go, man, He just destroyed Egypt. What's so beautiful about that? God was introducing himself both to his people and to the Israel or to the Egyptians as he did that. Every plague attacked a god of Egypt and said, "You worship that god, I'll show you I'm more powerful than that god. You worship that god, I'll send a plague that just demonstrates how weak that god is." Oh, Ra, the sun god, how about I blot out the sun for a few days? We'll see how that works for you. The god of life, the last plague, remember the last plague, the god of life that you worship? How about if I kill all the firstborn children of animals of all the nation of Egypt. And God's introducing Himself and saying, I'm more powerful than that God. I'm better than that God. I am the God of the gods. And so as you see these things unfold, 
God's been introducing them, but the people don't really know God yet. Moses is going to be instrumental in these 40 years of them wandering in the desert, of teaching them about God, of showing them God. And God's going to reveal himself personally to them over and over as well. And then here's the last thing. They've been crying out to God for salvation for hundreds of years with no answer. Can you imagine for 430 years asking God for something and not getting an answer? How do you feel about God in those moments? Some of us ask God for something for a week, and when He doesn't answer, we're like, oh, I guess there's no God then, fine. We just feel like that. Maybe He doesn't hear. Maybe He doesn't understand. Maybe He's not powerful enough to do anything about it. For 430 years, they've been crying out to be saved, and God has not done anything. And yet now, God steps into this moment in history, and He saves them. He pulls them out of Egypt. But the thing about all of that is, is they're still wondering, is this God who saved us trustworthy? Now that we're out of Egypt, can we trust Him? And maybe you feel like that. Maybe you've seen God do some good things in your life, but you still wonder, can I trust Him? What if the next bad thing that comes along, will He still be there for me then? Can I trust Him? And we have to figure out if God is trustworthy or not. So all of these things that's beautiful about this picture is that when God leads them here to this peninsula, the mountains on one side and the ocean on the other, here's what I love. God's with them. And so if you look back at the passage of Scripture, He's with them on the, on the entire time. Pharaoh is coming hot on their heels, and God's with them. He told Moses to have the people camp on that spot of land. Next week we're going to see that He directs Pharaoh directly to that spot to come after the Israelites. And yet the entire time His presence and His power is with them at every moment. And here's what's amazing. The same thing is true for us. It's true for us. God is with you every single moment. God's always there. He's always with you. His presence and His power are always with you. Now here's the last thing that I want to do. I want us to close with this perspective of dealing with difficult situations. When we have difficult situations to face in life, there's four things that I hope we can learn to say. There's four things that I hope we can figure out how to grab a hold of for the purposes of God's plan for our lives that we can say, when difficult times come, here's what I'm going to do about it. Here's how I'm going to see the perspective. Here's the first thing. Number one, I am here by God's appointment. When difficulties come in your life, you can say, I'm here by God's appointment. God is sovereign over all things. Nothing is an accident. God knows everything. God doesn't dwell in space and time like we do. God lives outside of the boundaries of space and time. He sees everything as if it's happening. He knows everything that will happen in the future as if it's happening right now. Nothing catches God off guard. So if we can learn to say, I'm here in this moment, in this difficulty, in this trial, in this circumstance, by God's appointment. He's either led me here or He's allowed me to be here. But God's in control. I'm here by His appointment. The second thing that we learn to say is this. I'm here in His keeping. I'm in His keeping. He's led me here and I'm in His hands. He has a hold of me. Listen to Psalm chapter 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going both now and forever. He's with you. So you're here by God's appointment. You're also in His keeping. And then the third thing is this, that when we face trials, we can say, 
I'm here under His training. That every situation we face in life is a teachable moment. If you're a parent and have kids, you kind of figure out what that looks like from a simple parent perspective. That everything that we do in life is a teachable moment that we can look at our kids and go, do you know why that happens? Do you know why that's real? What did you do there? Let me help you understand why that hurts. Let me teach you. God does those same things for us. That when we face difficult moments, we can say, I'm here by His appointment, I'm here in His hand, and I'm under His training. And then the last thing, this is number four, that I'm here for His fame. I'm here for His fame. God may put you in a difficult situation, a difficult circumstance, and it may very well be that the entire reason He does is so you can bring glory and honor to the name of God. And so we're going to look at that a lot more in depth next week. That's going to be the second kind of rule that we're going to understand is what does it mean to be in difficult situations and yet magnify God's glory and God's fame. And so as we close out today, here's what I want to just say. The next time you're facing a difficult situation, remember this. You're there by God's appointment. You're in His keeping. You're under His training. And you're there for His glory. You may not understand that at the time, And even though all circumstances point evidence to the contrary, the difficult situations when you have that perspective are the very best place you can be because God's with you and He's in control. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that hardships are difficult to deal with in life. We know that it's not fun to go through these kinds of times. And Father, even some of us may right now be very much in a place where we feel comfortable where things aren't difficult, where we're just breezing through life, and yet the truth is, is that there may be a storm on the way for us. And so we're going to need to know how to handle those things when they come. For others of us, God, there are people here in this room right now that are facing difficulties, that are going through hardships. They feel alone. They don't know how to handle it. Maybe worry and fear has crept in. God, my hope would be that they would be able to take heart in this, knowing that you are the God who's overcome, that you are the God who walks with us, that you're in control, that you have your hand over us all the time, that you're training us and teaching us. And God, that there is something bigger for us to live for because your fame and your renown are always to be the desires of our heart. So God, we just pray that you would encourage us today and lead us to understand that you're always there. Sometimes you lead us to difficult situations. Sometimes you allow us to be in those situations, but you never leave us. You never forsake us. And we can trust you. Thank you for that promise, God. We ask in Jesus' name.